Morning all, you can remain standing, we're going to read the scripture in just a second. If you have your Bibles, we're going to look at Matthew's Gospel today, uh, chapters 4 and 5, and so the Beatitudes, Sermon on the Mount, is universally recognized as the greatest teaching in human history. Uh, Scholars, Christian scholars throughout history have acknowledged that, but not only Christian scholars, but uh, all the other major religions in the world, their scholars also acknowledge the Sermon on the Mount as the most substantial teaching in all of human history. It's, it's a powerful text, and the next couple of weeks we're going to look at it. Now, just before we read the scripture, I want to give you an update uh, on my wife Beth's health. Uh, I want, I want you to hear this from me rather than from someone else. Uh, some of you know that 25 years ago, Beth was diagnosed with breast cancer, and we went through surgery and radiation chemotherapy at that time, and, and she has done wonderfully well, and this has been a great gift to us and our family, 25 years. Uh, routine mammogram, ladies, very important, routine mammogram this time showed some, some uh, concerns, and she has been diagnosed with cancer again. On July 15th, she uh, underwent surgery, and she is convalescing at our home down in Brown County today, and... Um, I've been her primary nurse, please pray, and she's doing well and recovering normally. We should get the labs back from the surgery either tomorrow or Tuesday, so we'll know more about the treatment protocols going forward uh, from those results. All of other scans have been clean and clear, so we're very encouraged, we're optimistic. The doctors are being very hopeful with us that we've caught this at an early stage, and uh, that's what you want, and so... Uh, we are hopeful. And so thank you for your prayers and your support. I know that you will pray and you know families experience cancer. Some of you have survived cancer and you understand just how important it is to get the love and support of the community of faith. And you can literally physically, emotionally feel the support and prayers that people offer. So thank you for that. I wanted you to hear that from me uh, before you heard it from someone else. And uh, we'll give you updates along the way to let you know how she's doing. But she's doing well and recovering normally. So thanks for, for your support. All right, today we want to read from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4, beginning at verse 23, and then through chapter 5, verse 12. Here are the words of God. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Now, if someone asks you, what was, the, what was the earthly ministry of Jesus about? Three things. Preaching, teaching, healing. That was his deal. That was his gig. Verse 24, news about him spread all over Syria. And people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Healed them all. Healed everybody. Everybody's sick. Got well. No exceptions. No qualifications. Didn't have to believe. Didn't have to pray just right. Didn't have to be good. You present yourself to the healing stream and presence of God through Jesus, and you get well. That was the deal. Large crowds from Galilee. Can you imagine that large crowds were following? Yeah. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, now here's the context, these large numbers of people following Jesus from the miracles, 
sat down, his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So may God inspire us today through this powerful word. You may be seated. Thanks so much. Central to the Sermon on the Mount is the kingdom of God. Central to all of Jesus' life and ministry was the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is is where the rule and authority and reign of God exists. And, And when Jesus was asked by the disciples at one point, how should we pray? He said, pray this way, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So Whatever's in the kingdom, come to the earth. That's, Jesus said, pray this way. What's up there should come down here. Up there, down here. Up there, down here. And so that is a prayer that is a legitimate prayer, inviting God's rule and reign, his authority, his kingdom to the earth. Now, on your outline, you'll see a couple of points I want to make today. And just to build some context for the Beatitudes, we'll cover four of these eight Beatitudes today and then four next week. And by the way, the word blessed, when Jesus said blessed, it means to be happy or to be joyful. Uh, A deeper translation would be to be so full of joy as to be envied. So one of those characters, that no matter the circumstances of life, these things tend toward the kind of satisfaction, fulfillment, and joy that God intends for us. So... In this context today, we find an amazing few statements here at the end of chapter 4 of Matthew's Gospel. And when I meditate on these verses, it's really uh, astonishing. It's, it's, it's dramatic. It's, it's wonderful. And what we hear here, verse 23, is he went about all of Galilee. He's teaching, preaching, and healing every disease, every disease. Every infirmity among the people. Verse 24, so his fame began to spread throughout all Syria. So people brought to him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, everybody with any kind of disorder whatsoever ends up with Jesus. Now, this is perfectly understandable. The average life expectancy of a human being in first century Palestine was about 30 years. How many in the room are over 30? You're over 30. Geezers. These are geezers in the room. Compared to first century Palestine, if you got to 30 years old in in first century Palestine, you were old. And people died. There was no, no, no hint of any kind of, of real genuine medical help at that time. You know, modern medicine is, is a relatively recent thing to history. So first century Palestine Folks, uh, folks grew up, they got married in their early teens or so, they started making babies, and by 30, you're dead, because something will get you. And, and so that was the context. So now, here's a guy comes along, his name is Jesus, 
He's got this little entourage, and he's going all through the region, and everywhere he goes, the kingdom of God and the glory of God and the power of God is flowing through this guy like a torrent, like a river flowing, and anybody who even touches the river even a little bit is completely made whole and well. No matter the disease, no matter the dysfunction, no, uh, all the way from people who were blind to people who were paralyzed to people who were dead. Jesus never preached a funeral because every dead person who ever came up on got back up. The power of God, the kingdom of God is flowing. Now, here's what you need to do. Come with me today, if you will. In your imagination, you have to suspend your rational skepticism because we've all lived a while and we all, we've, we've all decided what God will do and what he won't do. We, we have God in a box and God doesn't work outside the box that we've created for him. And so some of the things that happen to us, we just don't believe. So imagine that you're, you're going to some uh, new movie that has all this high tech and all the special effects and it takes you to a place and you know it's not real, but for a moment you suspend your disbelief and your doubt, and you believe it. I believe people can time travel. I believe people can move at the speed of light. I believe uh, galaxies can be explored. You know, let your mind go. In this case, just imagine that a guy, a young guy, comes into town, Muncie, Indiana, and he's got a small entourage with him, a handful of other guys. They all look pretty average. And Jesus asks the first guy he sees, where is the local hospital? They point him to Ball Hospital, and Jesus shows up there. Now, you, can, you may not know this, but you can walk right in the hospital. Just walk right in. And what I've done for years is I just act like I, I belong there, and I just go anywhere I want. And no one ever stops me because I just act like I belong. People have asked me medical advice over the years. What do you think about this? Well, I'm not sure my opinion matters. I'm not a doctor. <laughs> People think... It's hilarious. So Jesus, Jesus, with his group, walk in. Start in the emergency room. He goes into the first, first room in the emergency department. And there's a woman there. She has a large gash on her head. And she's waiting for someone to stitch her up. And Jesus just walks over to her, puts his hand on her, and says, Daughter, you're well. Go home. And the wound completely closes and covers, and she's well. He goes in the next room, and there's a man in there. He's in excruciating pain. He's fallen on the job. He's broken his femur, and he's waiting for someone to take him to surgery to set this bone, and he's in enormous amount of pain, and Jesus walks in. He says, Brother, fear not. Puts his hand on his leg. His femur mends, and I mean like that. Go with me now. Imagine this happening. Guy gets up and walks back to his job. Jesus goes into the next room, and there's a woman in there, and she's been in a horrible traffic accident, and they're, they're working on her feverishly, trying to, keep, trying to keep her blood pressure up until they can rush her to surgery because everyone suspects that she has severe internal injuries, and she's, she is uh, just barely conscious and responsive at all. And Jesus walks to the foot of her bed, and, and no one notices because they're all busy working on this woman. And he simply lifts his hands like this and says to her, Be whole and well and healed. And in a few seconds, her eyes begin to flutter and she's taking normal deep breaths and she coughs a couple of times and she wakes up and the doctors and the nurses step back because they are amazed at what's, what's happening before them. And the woman swings her legs out, 
stands up and says, I think, I feel, I think I'm okay, I'm going to go home. And he works his way through the whole hospital, room by room, floor by floor. And now there's a crowd. Can you imagine? There may be some people noticing this now. All the way into surgery where, where a man now has his sternum open because he's, he's having an open heart surgery. And Jesus walks in there and he says, who the heck are you? And Jesus says, I'm here to pray for this man. That's, and he just simply lifts his hands like this, asks the doctors to step away. And the man's sternum closes and heals before their eyes. And he is completely well. Suspend your skepticism. He gets all the way to oncology where people are in the various stages of treatment for cancer. And there's one woman there and she has a brain tumor. And Jesus goes into her room and says, Sister, what is your problem? And she said, I have a brain tumor. They said, I'm going to die probably in the next week. She said, I'm very sick. And he simply rests his hand on her head and says, Daughter, you're no longer ill. And inside of her brain, this tumor begins to shrink and dissolve just like that until it is gone. And her brain finds its normal position and all of the cells all come together and reconnect and the synapses are working perfectly and she is well. And she gets up and she walks out. And in the span of hours, a handful of hours, Jesus has emptied the hospital. There are no more patients there. Everyone is well. Everyone, every body is completely whole. Now, let me ask you, would that cause a stir? Would, would people take notice of that? Would the word get out? I'm telling you, the campus would empty, offices would empty, businesses would empty, houses would empty, People would come rushing to Ball Memorial Hospital. There would be a traffic jam of, of historic proportions. People would wonder, what is happening? And the word would be out there, and there would be others now who have maladies and pain uh, and, and all kinds of issues. And they would try to find this guy who has healing power. And so it was in Jesus' day. He went through the whole region of Galilee, in Syrian, Damascus, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, and everywhere he went, crowds of people began to follow him because he had the power, the power of God flowing through him. And it was a phenomenon, and people were desperate to receive his touch. Most healings today in the Western world, of course, are, are occurring through the application of, of medicine and medical and psychological therapies, and that's Tremendous. That's great. You know, think of the advancements in science. And we're learning more and more about human DNA, you know, the building blocks of life. And as people unpack the genetic codes and, and, and sources and, and causes for a lot of the cancers and, and other maladies, it's an amazing thing. And uh, it's been a fascinating process for Beth uh, and me these last uh, several weeks. You know, 25 years ago, there was a technology that treated cancer. And now there's a different technology. And it's fascinating to listen to folks talk and using new terminology and, and different treatment protocols. And, and, and in Beth's case, you know, from the biopsy, and we'll hear more about this, about receptors on her cells. And the more receptors there are, that's better because we can treat those with hormones or with, with chemicals and radiation, and, and we, can, we can kill these cells. And it's, you know, it's fascinating. And it's wonderful, and it's good. 
But the temptation for us, at least in the Western world and here in the United States in particular, the temptation is to rely solely on what medical science can do to keep us well. But we must not exclude from our worldview the opportunity that God might have to touch us and, and the power of prayer and its application in our lives. So it must be both and, not either or. And we should be open to that. There should be a creative tension, a creative tension uh, and dynamic between science and the healing power of prayer. And that's the way Beth and I are approaching this. I mean, we're going to do everything we can. Cancer to us, we've been through this before, as I mentioned, and cancer for us is like an invader in the house, someone who breaks into your house and threatens somebody you love. Listen, if you break into my house and threaten somebody I love, there, you can expect a skirmish. There's going to be a confrontation. There's, there's, going, to be a, there's going to be a tussle. You can't come into my house without a fight. What are you thinking? And we treat cancer the same way. It's an, it's an intruder, an unwelcome. So it intrudes and threatens someone we love, and so we're going to do everything we can. Medical science says we can, we can attack that. We say, come on, join the team. And we also have the power of prayer and the people of God who say, look, we'll surround you, we will pray for you, and we will believe that God, and his healing virtue and grace will touch your wife. Yeah, bring that on too. We like it. And so that's the way we approach it. High tech and high touch. That should be our strategy. So this is, this is the kingdom of God at ground level. This is where the rubber hits the pavement. This is where the feet are in the dirt. This is the application of our lives and an understanding of Jesus' presence. Now the second thing I want to mention, just as we get into these Beatitudes, is the, the notion that the kingdom of God is an upside-down kingdom. You should write that down, upside-down. Now, the reason I say that is because if you are serious about following Jesus, he will <laughs> turn your life upside-down. It's the way it works. It, there are times you, just, you feel like he's pulling you inside-out. And there, and there are all kinds of unique and different kinds of experiences and pressure points and and challenges that come to us because God is at work now in our lives in a direct way. Now here in Matthew chapter 5, this is the narrative for the Sermon on the Mount. And we have these great throngs of people who are now following Jesus. Now imagine, Jesus has gone to Ball Hospital on a Friday and messed up the whole town. And the, the, I mean, it, it has literally shut down the whole, the whole northwest corner of the city. And so an announcement is made. On Sunday afternoon, this guy is going to make an appearance at Schumann Stadium, Ball State's football stadium. Anybody who has interest or has need or you know someone who is sick, you need, know someone who is, who is ill, you bring them. <laughs> so churches like Union Chapel all over the city are saying, you know, this afternoon at 2, you know, be at the football stadium. Of course, I'd be talking to myself because you'd all be already out there trying to get a good seat. And the place, the place would be complete. There would be tens of thousands of people there. Can you, can you see people in, in wheelchairs being wheeled up? Can you, can you see people on crutches? Can you, can you see beds? Maybe people in beds. 
And tens of thousands of people in the stadium completely fills up, completely fills up and overflows. And, and all, of the, all of the parking and the field itself is completely packed with people. Tens of thousands. Most of the city is there. And the PA system is turned on and this guy, this average looking guy, picks up the microphone and this is what he says. The kingdom of God has come near you. Repent of your sins and believe. And then he begins to teach. And he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And we listen and we hang on every word because this is the guy. And he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And we think, what, do, what does he mean? What does he, what does he imply by that? And, we, and suddenly we begin to get understanding because the spirit of God now is moving among us and he opens our minds and opens our hearts and begins to allow us to understand truth and to see the, the light of it. Poor in spirit, we realize, yeah, poor means I don't have what I need. There's, there's nothing in my ledger. There are no assets with regard to my relationship with God and my connection with God. There's nothing about me that connects me at all with God. I'm in deficit. I am, I am in great need. I am impoverished. I am poor. I'm spiritually broke. And I need help. And these are the people who begin to understand what poor in spirit means. And when they realize that their poverty, their spiritual poverty with regard to their relationship with God, then makes them eager recipients for what Jesus may say next. If I don't have what I need to connect with God, then please tell me what I do need in order to connect with God. And then he says, verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Mourn? Okay, I've been sad before. I know what grief is. But then suddenly you realize, no, no, it's, it's more than my dog died. It's something else. I've been sad before. What does he mean when he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And suddenly you begin to realize, oh, it's associated with this poverty of spirit. I know I'm broke. I know I'm undone. I know that I'm hopeless. I know that I'm without help in my own strength and my ability to connect with God. So Jesus now says, blessed are those who mourn, those who grieve over their separation from God, those who are sad about their own sin and sad about the consequences to that sin. And not just our own sin, but suddenly mourning and grieving over the sins of the world. And we see the consequences of sinful behavior in the lives of people and the evil that's perpetrated in our world. And it hurts us and it grieves us and we mourn. Blessed, so full of joy, so happy. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Many people don't like the mourning, don't like the grief, don't like the sadness. And so we want to quickly discard it. But listen, don't let go of it too quickly because the emotion of it, the, the, the feelings that, 
that we garner because of our sadness and our sorrow for our own sin keeps us in contact with and connected to the sadness that God himself has over our sins. We grieve with those things that God grieves over. So get a hold of your grief and your mourning over your own sins and the sins of others because you will be comforted. And then he says, verse 5, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And we, we hear that and we go, yeah, I've heard that before. The meek will inherit the earth. Yeah, I've heard people say that. The meek will inherit the earth. And it's a big inheritance. So who are these people who will inherit the earth? Well, these are people, and it begins to come to our understanding as Jesus says it, those people who do not push themselves forward, those people who are not impressed by status, those people who are not impressed with wealth, they are the meek. These are men and women who wait for God to lead and to provide and to promote. They, they are personally strong and powerful, yet have that strength under the guiding control of the Holy Spirit. And that is the, dis, the definition of meekness, that my strength now is under control. The most insightful statement I've ever seen on meekness comes from Oswald Chambers. I want to put the statement on the screen for you. And he wrote these words. He said, the meek man is not a human mouse afflicted with a sense of his own inferiority. Rather, he may be in his moral life as bold as a lion and as strong as Samson, but he has stopped being fooled about himself. This is so rich. He has accepted God's estimate of his own life. He knows he is as weak and helpless as God has declared him to be, poor in spirit. But, paradoxically, he knows at the same time that he is, in the sight of God, more important than the angels, filled with all kinds of potential, all kinds of power. But he also knows well that the world will never see him as God sees him, as this potential-filled person, this powerful person. And he has stopped caring. And that is so strong. That is so strong. The person who is meek understands their strength. They know their power, but they manage it under the controlling influence of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said, the meek shall inherit the earth. Let me give you an example. Pastor, a friend, reminisced about a kindly Amish family. He said that they grew up in his neighborhood when he was young. And this family, Amish family's name was Royer. And the Royers grew watermelons and other produce for their primary source of income. And one summer night, about this time of year, some teenage boys, drunk, got out into his watermelon field and began to destroy the watermelon. They saw in the distance a lighted lantern, first in the second story window of the home, then down the stairs, out on the front porch, and making its way out to the field. And the boys braced themselves for a fight. And when Mr. Royer got out into his field. This is what he said. He looked at the boys and he said, Boys, you're welcome. You're welcome to any watermelons that I have. But he said, You're really, you're not in the best field. He said, My best, my best watermelons are in the other field. I, I'd be glad to take you over there where my best watermelons are, and then you can have as many as you want. And the boys were embarrassed, and they were ashamed. And Mr. Royer invited them in. He said, would you come in? I'd like to give you some lemonade. He said, I think you need it. 
and they declined the invitation because they were trying to process the profound lesson of character development that Mr. Royer had offered them. Mr. Royer's example of meekness was not weakness, was it? In fact, it was profound strength. Profound strength. The overcoming of hate. The overcoming of revenge. The overcoming of bitterness. The overcoming of unforgiveness. That's a strength. That's saying that I'm not going to allow the weakness of another person overcome my strength. That's saying that I want to be filled with the fruit of the Holy Spirit, the controlling influence of God's presence in my life. Because blessed are the meek, they will inherit the earth. And as Jesus teaches, the light is coming on in people's hearts and minds all over the stadium. And by the way, in the meantime, people are getting well. A man has been wheeled in in a wheelchair who hasn't been able to walk for six years suddenly stands up and realizes strength has returned to his legs. And a woman who had been, who had been literally carted in because her family doesn't know what else to do with her. She has early onset dementia and she's a relatively young woman. She's only 50 years old and, and she has horrible depression and she's been in a dark, dark place for many years and she, she's unresponsive for the most part to anyone in her lives and her family's at the end of themselves. They don't know what to do so they cart her to this meeting and in the, in the middle of Jesus saying, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth, suddenly this woman his countenance begins to change. <laughs> and her eyes begin to flutter. And a smile comes to her face. And she looks over at her daughter and she says, Sweetheart, what are we, why are we here? What's happening? Mother, is that you? And in just a few more seconds, her mother sits up on the bed and sees her children around her begins to embrace them and kiss them on the face and tell them how much she loves them. She's back. And all over the stadium, hundreds and hundreds of people receiving wholeness and wellness. One man completely paralyzed. He's, he's quadriplegic. He's in his automated chair. He, 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 can't, he can't move. Suddenly, he begins to have a tingling sensation in his hands and his arms. Works its way down his torso and into his legs. He sees his, he can wiggle his toes and then his feet. Suddenly, virtue comes back into his limbs and his muscles and his connective tissue. And he feels, he literally feels strength. And after a few moments, his friends look at him and he says, I think I can. And he braces himself on his chair and he stands up. And then he goes walking and leaping. And he's having a moment because he's happy about this. And he's excited about it. And he's jumping and he's praising. And he's thanking God. People notice him. Place begins to go crazy. Welcome to the kingdom. Welcome to the kingdom. We live in this world, friends. 
We are living in a moment of history where we are literally observing the destruction of Western culture. It's happening right before our eyes. It's happening as I speak. The values and the virtues that have made Western culture strong and resilient over the years is dissipating like a fog in the morning before our eyes. It's going completely away. And there's very little left of it. It's like, a, it's like rubble left in the foundations. And this isn't the first time in history that human beings have chosen to turn their back on God and to pursue their own earthly desires and lusts and live for themselves and believe, believe that they are the beginning and the end of anything that matters. And in those moments of history, the church of Jesus Christ has a choice to make, just as we have a choice. We can choose to conform to the, the new shape of culture, to the new fads and forms of, of the world. We can, we can adjust our theology. We can adjust our social principles. We can adjust our moral standards to conform, to somehow rationalize our way about it by suggesting that if we conform to the new standards, then we'll be more appealing and attractional with the hope of Jesus to people who are now living a corrupt life. Or we can choose the way that many have chosen before us, which is the way of moral conviction. And to embrace afresh and anew our desire to be followers of Jesus Christ, counting the cost of that discipleship, counting it carefully, not diminishing or de demeaning it, but to estimate it rightly. What does it cost to be a follower of Jesus in a culture like this? And then to put on the full armor of God and to stand in the confidence that God alone can give us and to be determined to live a courageous life for Jesus' sake in the midst of such a culture. Those are the choices we have. But this teaching of the Beatitudes, the greatest teaching in human history, by all accounts, begins with being impoverished in spirit, and the last one ends with persecution and suffering. Blessed are those who are persecuted for my namesake. And we know that Jesus himself, the great teacher, came to the end of his life, obedient to God, resulting in suffering. So we have to choose. We have to choose what we're going to do. We have to choose who we're going to follow. We're going to have to choose who we want to be, who we want to be in this life. So we have to assess, don't we? We have to reassess. We have to regularly pause and check ourselves and make sure that we still have a desire to follow Jesus and that our lives reflect that conviction. Let me conclude with this story from a young woman, her name was Karen Watson. She went to the nation of Iraq in 2003 as a missionary. Now, in case that doesn't compute, Iraq is not a friendly place to Christian missionaries. We get that. Iraq is a dangerous place. But Karen Watson decided to go there. That's where God had called her to go. And so she went. And by the way, there are young people, men and women, 
from the United States, from parts of Europe, from parts of Asia, from South Korea, who this day are packing their bags and heading to places like Iraq and Iran, Saudi Arabia, in order to offer the hope of Christ. And while that makes comfortable Christians in Muncie and Anna go, what are you, what are you thinking? You know, you, you're going to get killed. You're going to lop off your head. Still they go, having counted the cost. The letter from Karen Watson is dated March 7th, 2003, and Karen, along with four other missionaries, was martyred in Iraq in March 15th, 2004, one year later. Here is her letter to her pastor. Dear pastor, you should only be opening this letter in the event of my death. When God calls, there are no regrets. I tried to share my heart with you as much as possible, my heart for the nations. I wasn't called to a place. I was called to him. To obey was my objective. To suffer was expected. His glory, my reward. One of the most important things to remember right now is to preserve the work. I'm writing this as if I'm still working with my people group in Iraq. I thank you all so much for your prayers and support. Surely your reward in heaven will be great. Thank you for investing in my life and my spiritual well-being. Keep sending missionaries. Keep raising up fine young pastors. And in regards to my memorial service, keep it small and simple. Simply preach the gospel. Be bold and preach the life-saving, life-changing, forever eternal gospel. Give glory and honor to our God. Then comes an appendix in her letter. It's titled The Missionary Heart, and it reads, Care more than some think is wise. Risk more than some think is safe. Dream more than some think is practical. Expect more than some think is possible. And then the letter concludes, I was called not to comfort or success, but to obedience. There is no joy outside of knowing Jesus and serving him. I love you and my church family. I remain in his care. Salam, Karen. Karen.